Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Enterprise Sales Development Podcast, brought to you by Science Technologies. We interview outbound leaders at fast growth businesses to learn their secrets and bring you actionable insights. Thanks for joining us this week. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Enterprise Sales Development. My name is Eric Quanstrom. I'm the CMO of Science. This week, we've got a really fun episode. And in fact, you know, this is a, a unique one in the sense that our guest is Vince Blasio. Vince Blasio is the Director of Sales Development at Paychex. And it turns out, and this is the really interesting part, he's been at Paychex for two decades now, 21 years to be exact. And so he knows everything there is to know <laughs> about <clears throat> this organization, you know, successful, publicly traded, really like killing it at the top of the funnel. And he's held a variety of roles. And now as the Director of Sales Development, he lets us in on frankly, a lot of the secrets of their success, how they go to market, the types of strategies that they use, how they've kind of like even chopped up their market and organized, you know, their top of the funnel fighting force going forward for best effect. I think you're going to learn a ton. Let's listen. Welcome back, everyone, to the Enterprise Sales Development Podcast. Vince, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to uh, to be here and, and share whatever information that we want to dive into today. Yeah, well, as our audience heard in the intro, you've been at Paychex for, what, almost 22 years now? Is that right? Almost 22 years, all of which is pretty much in the world of uh, filling the top of the funnel, started in lead gen uh, entry level, and, and now have the pleasure of uh, overseeing the uh, division of the company that actually does uh, all of our facets of uh, lead generation. That's awesome. So it's not a uh, a business unit. You oversee all of the different forms of lead generation, pretty much for throughout paychecks. That's correct. So it's what we would call a company sourced lead. So it could be inbound through our marketing division, it could be outbound cold calling efforts, it could be sales development, which is our biggest growth area. Uh, there's a, a variety of different ways that we push leads to our field partners, and anything that has to do with the company sourced lead is the group that uh, I'm fortunate enough to be able to oversee every day. Could you give us an idea of just kind of size and scope? I mean, Paychex is a, what, like a $45 billion <laughs> market cap, 15,000 employee type company, right? Uh, it is. And it has grown uh, tremendously really over the past few years. When I started at Paychex, there were probably you know in the eight to 9,000 range. And, and so we've just continued to grow due to our financial success. We've had the ability to also do some acquisitions, uh, both international and uh, here in the U.S., uh, from a lead gen standpoint, uh, we support about 3,000 salespeople. So what we call is our, our sales force is the power of 3K. And the group that I have between all the aspects of lead gen represents about 250 uh, of those individuals. So we have pretty good size scope of people that are here to help fill the top of the funnel. Do those sales teams share a methodology across the company? And is that consistent of what you serve? Or do you have to have kind of different internal clients and serve them each differently? You know, some sales teams set their own meetings, some rely on yeah. outsourced. How does that work in, for you guys? Yeah. So uh, it is not consistent across the rest of the organization. It would make probably my life and everybody <laughs> on my staff's life much easier if it were. Um, but that's not on accident. That's because we have a customized way, depending on if we're talking to the enterprise space, we approach a prospect differently than we approach a client. Some salespeople are pure hunters doing a lot of outbound 
type of lead gen themselves. And then we complement that. Some of them are individuals that do what's called the channel type world. Uh, so they're working with different network centers of influence to bring business in. So variety of different segments, employee segments, geography, products. Uh, the group that I have needs to be uh, aware of all of those at all times because we create different opportunities based on the group that we're sending it to. So we have an entire matrix that helps us route the opportunities that we have based on business owner needs uh, and the type of rep that would be in that segment. Well, wow, that, that's great. I'd love to actually start to unpack that from what I, from the outside looking in, it seems to be to be one of the largest total addressable markets of just about any company anywhere, right? Like you guys could theoretically do business with just about any business of right. any size. Yeah. Yeah, we, we could. So the, the interesting piece with when you think about lead gen and, and our job is to go out there and trailblaze and, and bring business in to the company, our market, which if you consider that under the umbrella of payroll uh, taxes and human capital management, our market still is actually dominated by small businesses that want to do the, all of it themselves. So there's only about 25% penetration of being outsourced to do what we do. So we've had this tremendous success in the addressable market. However, it's actually much bigger than even what we've touched, which obviously provides us a pretty big blue ocean of uh, opportunity. You know, that's interesting because obviously so many people work in red ocean spaces, but when you work in a big blue ocean with the total addressable markets, that's basically the market, <laughs> for Correct. lack of a better description. Correct. How do you block and tackle there? How do you decide who to go after, who to focus on when there are so many options? Yeah, it's not an easy thing to do. What What is easy is just sort of pick up a, a list of names and, and go after it. But we've learned over time to implement a lot of data science to what we do. So we used to be a lot of here's all the businesses and maybe slice it by employee segment uh, or here's all the businesses, maybe go after a vertical market. But that isn't really the most effective way that we find in our space now. We've got to use data science. We've got to scrub our data. We've got to use a set methodology. We've got to nurture accounts. We've got to engage them in a variety of different ways. We also need to be persona-based. So I, I have to have a different word track if I'm talking to a financial person. and It's really got to be about the bottom line versus if I'm talking to an HR person where what's going to resonate with them is talking about benefits for the employees. So not only does it become centric to the type of company, the vertical market, combine that with the actual size and scope, but then combine that even further with who are you talking to? And then we become extremely targeted in our approach versus a one size fits all, which we would have a very low contact rate at this point if we tried one size fits all. So maybe unpack for us and our listeners a little bit about kind of your data science methods. It sounds like this is a core competency and something you've kind of built up maybe even over the years. Uh, correct in the fact that it was built up over the years. So we started with let's let's scrub data in, internally and let's refine you know, lists and try to make our CRM you know, a little bit cleaner. And then from there, it was let's use some third-party vendors that can bring us in good data and do you know, what everybody would consider enrich the data, update our contacts and do some different pieces. Now we have a full-fledged group that does data science. That is a huge benefit to the division uh, that I have because they help take what we're doing and make it that much more targeted. And then you can also leverage trigger events as well. So it did take a long time to build out what is that model, internal versus third party and combine it all together. But it is the cornerstone of when we're going to go after a specific of what we call a campaign. 
So a very targeted approach to something from a sales development perspective. We will always leverage our data science partners and also our strategy partners to ensure what we do uh, is the right fit holistically for the company, but also in doing so by being smarter about our approach. You know, when you're thinking about taking that perspective and serving these different groups, everyone defines sales development a little bit differently. Some people aren't even sure whether to call it marketing or sales or its own kind of in-between. How do you consider your kind of position in the organization relative to the sales and marketing orgs? And kind of how do you try to make your, your department the most helpful and the most productive? Yeah, absolutely. So there, there are a lot of companies that combine lead gen and marketing. Maybe they call them BDRs and maybe they call them SDRs and in a variety of different ways. So we are coupled directly with marketing, meaning we're not under their structure and they're not under mine. It, it rolls up differently. However, we have to operate in lockstep with them to be sure we're leveraging the right material. They're taking the data that we create and then we both make each other a bit smarter with that. So two different business units. Um, the way that we really fit in is that marketing does a lot of nurturing from, from all their different processes, and they certainly do a great job bringing new business into the funnel. What we do is twofold. We leverage what they brought in to try to push it and accelerate it and go through our entire scrubbing process and get it out to a field person on an inbound basis. But then we need to go off and find business that's on the fringe um, or maybe the latent buyers that are out there, that's really where sales development kicks in for us. Let's find people that didn't necessarily approach us. They're there, but they need some sort of way to be, you know, some sort of an outreach to them. They need some sort of connection. Uh, and that's what we do in the sales development world. So really, if you were to look at what's the scope of sales development in our business, it is find all of that business that's out there that we currently don't have in our funnel or maybe really close to our funnel and create some gravity to bring a lot more of it in. So trailblazing new prospects, going out and and using methods uh, that find us different business to go after. Well, given your historical kind of like purview, if you will, and decades of experience here at, at Paychex, what would you say are some of the hallmarks, you've used the word trailblaze a couple of times, yeah. that you've seen change? What are some of the, the insights, if you will, that, that you've developed on that journey? So uh, th- there's definitely been a lot of different insights. I, I would say a couple things stand out. One, uh, we used to have a belief that there were maybe two or three segments that were what we would consider the hot segments to go after. And so what we learned over time is that if you continually beat up the same segment, it doesn't become hot anymore. Um, it just becomes people that have told you no two or three times. And so what we found is that we've got to really diversify that that prospect universe. You can't just stay calling uh, on the same people, even though if your historical trends and all of your KPIs tell you they close better and they say yes more often, it doesn't matter if you just keep going over that same uh, that same group of prospects. So that's why I say trailblazing, which is go off that path and find yeah. new ones to go after. So that's a big piece that we learned. What we also learned is that the phone is nowhere near dead. So at times, you know, we try to get too fancy, right? A lot of people try to get cute, right? And just do all this socializing through this. And I'm going to be a pro at this blogging and I'm going to go after these different pieces and all that stuff is great to me if it goes along with picking up the phone. But nothing beats taking all of that as a precursor to making phone calls to businesses and having a conversation. We just don't bring enough stuff in because we hope they read the content in an email or because we think they're on our website consuming some sort uh, of information. We've got to do all of those different pieces and we are 
you know, agile enough to, to incorporate those. But we never forget that we're going to make all of our numbers by making phone calls. I love that. I mean, you think about what the end goal is. You're trying to start sales conversations and a conversation, it, it's, it's audio. You have to be talking to someone. There, sales conversations don't really usually happen by just email. So there are a lot of other ways that you can talk to someone. But at the end of the day... Sure. I don't think anything is ever going to be better than either a phone call or a live meeting, some type of actual direct back and forth. And then I love the idea that you're talking about. One of the most common questions science gets, especially from new clients, is who who's the best group to go after? Who should we be targeting? And I think the mindset is let's get let's go after them forever. But you're saying find the best people to go after now, and that might not be the same group in three months, especially because you just hammered that entire group. So put them aside, let them relax and forget about all the messaging that you've you've gone after. Trailblaze, find a new group, go after them. And so basically it's not a static answer. It's something that you should always be changing. I think that's really interesting. Should always be changing, should always be evaluating. Right, right, right. What's our success rate with this? What does that market look like? What would it look like if we tried to go after a different group? So I, I think if you're doing both, you're doing something well. So if you look at where's your sweet spot and, and make sure you leverage that, but be prepared to look at your leading indicators that say, what's the next sweet spot? So you can build it, uh, try to build that plane in flight if you can, so that you're ready to go after that next market. Because if you wait until the current market is dry, you know you've waited too long to make some sort of a pivot to something else. So it's great if companies know, you know where, where they're going current state, uh, but I would definitely advise that businesses are also taking a look at where do we feel we're going to go after this? What's the next best thing that we're going to go after or who's the next best market we're going to sell to? It never hurts anybody to be planful. It often hurts business to not plan enough. It's really interesting. How far ahead do you guys plan is really what I'm I'm thinking here. Is three months enough, which I think is how far most companies, if they're looking forward at all, look? Is it six months? Is it like how far ahead do you guys plan? Yes. So to give you context around that, our fiscal year goes June to May. So we're going to wrap up a fiscal year here in early 22. We've been doing strategy planning for June since September. That's when our strategy planning begins. And, And I'm talking tactical strategy planning, not Future data, it would be great someday to do X, Y, or Z, not not sort of pie in the sky. This would be cool to go after. I'm talking actual get in the weeds of these strategies, develop them, work with our partners and start to to plan um, what we're going to launch in the June timeframe. If if somebody has a great idea right now, it's not that we can't launch it in June, but to do it well, I would say they're probably three to six months behind the eight ball. I think you're going to have shocked a bunch of our listeners by saying that. And maybe minorly panicked them a little bit. So the, the follow-up to that is, what do you recommend to someone who is currently planning zero to three months ahead and leading a group of sales development uh, specialists? How do they get to where you are? Well, first probably depends a little bit on their infrastructure. So if they're a smaller company, um, leader smaller companies do tend to have the ability to operate a little bit faster because they don't have so many different people to navigate through. So they may not have a sales enablement group and a marketing group and a data science group and a technology group and a strategy group and all all of those different pieces. So without so many groups, um, sometimes you move a little bit faster um, with that. However, what I would say is if as long as they are really taking a look again at what those leading indicators are in determining, can I predict right now where my numbers look 90 days from now? The, The way I view it is, I should be able to predict and forecast my success about 90 days out. Anything beyond that, the market's probably too difficult to tell, but I should get a pretty good sense 
of what my performance looks like about 90 days out. So for me, the planning has to be at least three months ahead of that. And I've got to plan at least a minimum of six months out because my forecast already goes nine months out. I don't want to live my strategy life within my forecast time period. Um, I just don't find that to be a best practice. So if somebody's really trying to plan about 90 days out, I think they can challenge themselves to say, what does it look like if we were to plan in two phases, a 90 day plan, but let's also come up with a six month plan and maybe come up with a nine month plan. And what does that look like and create the roadmap from that standpoint? Doesn't mean that you can't change, you know, change it a little bit along the way, but I know I could not effectively execute a strategy uh, and be planful if I only looked 90 days uh, out onto the horizon. There's just no way I could react to the market and other pieces fast enough for that. That would also seem to indicate, and please validate this uh, this statement that I'm about to make, <clears throat> that that you've got a pretty well-designed or well-orchestrated sense of quotas, forecasting, everything that would connect up to that kind of strategic planning process. We, we do. Uh, we do now. We didn't always. And when we launch a new uh, new business unit, so when we really got big into SDR, which is about, you know, the, the really the change came about that 2018, 2019 time where we really incorporated that compared to some of our other ways of doing lead gen. At that point, we didn't have a lot of leading indicators and we had to reset our metrics in our KPIs. And so it was a lot of planning um, and, you know, certainly a lot of skinning our knees like any other new business would do. But that's where we learned at that point that everything has to be very thoroughly vetted before we we just assume our partners know something or we assume somebody else knows something. We learned to be extremely methodical, overly process driven in what we were doing to ensure that that how we executed our plan didn't really have any hiccups in and all that. So it took us a little bit uh, of time. I wouldn't say it took us an exorbitant amount of time. If somebody spends two to three years developing comp plans, metrics, uh, and getting momentum, then something's off. It's fair to say it could take six to 12 months for somebody who's implementing a new way of doing sales development to feel like they've kind of hit their groove. Really curious about kind of like the the market drivers of that move, as you indicated, towards uh, more sales development model. And, you know, your current role, you you started as director of sales development back in 2019. What do you think like Paycheck saw at that time that said, hey, we're going to go in this strategic direction. We're going to resource this. We're going to, you know, make this a, a, a priority at the company. Yeah, I, I know exactly the trigger that, that took place with that because the group that I oversaw up until that point was the other side of lead gen, which was the more high volume side of, of lead gen. What we determined that at that point was we had done a pretty good job of really dominating in the lower space of the market from a payroll and a human capital management standpoint. And, and that was sort of the, the roots of the company. We really started to do well moving up market, which to us up market really is, you know, that, that 20 plus employee space or 50 plus employees, depending on, you know, a few different variables. However, the idea was in order to truly bring net new business in up market, that's the difference between simply making phone calls and nurturing people to have the right type of conversation. So we knew we didn't want to just go high volume approach to putting things in the funnel in the enterprise space because it doesn't stick well enough and you don't get acceleration in your sales process. So we decided that in order to truly start to do well in the enterprise space, we need 
the representatives that sell those products to get a very qualified type of opportunity. It needed to have purpose behind it. It needed to be targeted and we needed to set them up uh, with an opportunity that was truly winnable for them to do a, a full demo. We couldn't just crack the door open an inch. It's not a transactional business at that space, transactional low, lower payroll, that's true. But in that space, it's really about getting the business owner to understand there's value in what we have to offer because we also know that business converting over is a much more painstaking process than a three-person business. And so they have to have a real good sense of it's worth my time to meet with your representative because I understand all the dots that this connects. But again, you can't do that with really a quick lead gen phone call. We needed to use a much more thorough approach. So once we really decided we wanted to go all in on supporting the enterprise space from a lead gen standpoint, we decided it was a nurturing and sales development approach versus a cold call, uh, high volume approach. That's interesting. So, so many people that are not targeting enterprise obviously still use sales development, but it's interesting to hear how it went from a nice to have to a must have when you got into enterprise. Obviously, that happens to be the focus of this podcast is enterprise sales development. And one of the very common topics is how much more complex or much more there is to enterprise sales development versus necessarily targeting maybe a new small business or a group that doesn't have 15 plus decision makers at times. And that's something you mentioned earlier, persona-based targeting and persona-based approach, especially when you're in the enterprise space. How many different types of personas does a company like Paychex go after? And what is your approach these days when it comes to getting in the door? Do you go after decision makers? Do you not even bother anymore? And do you start with with people that are within their buying group or report into them? Like, what, What's the initial targeting plan for a company like yours? Uh, so from the persona standpoint, we, we don't go we don't go crazy and boil the ocean on that one. I, I would have like 11 or 12 different personas. It's just too <laughs> complex for somebody to wrap their head around. It's more of an HR persona, a financial persona, or president, CEO type of persona. So we're either talking, again, human resources and benefits, their financials, or big picture, how do you move your company forward? So really three main types of personas. We do have other ones based on very specific campaigns, but for the most part, we're really talking about, we'd rather skill our individuals up to be very proficient in three than to be lightly proficient in about nine. Uh, They just don't, they can't use the word tracks effectively and it it gets sort of too cobbled together with what they're doing. So from a persona standpoint, um, we just really have, you know, those, those three specific ones. A great tip for our audience also not going too crazy with the personas. I mean, you can subcategorize and subcategorize until you have 20 or 30 different ones. But at the end of the day, it's, what are the value points and the pains that they go through? And it's going to come into pretty broad categories. I think that's really good from an enablement standpoint. And then what are your thoughts in terms of not only how many personas to go after, but do you guys like to go top down, bottom up? Do you try both? Does it depend on the business unit? Doesn't depend on the business unit. We go, we try to go top down with with what we're doing. We we want to go for a decision maker. Doesn't matter if I'm calling a two employee pizza pizza place or if I'm calling a seventy five person machine shop. We want to go with the person that makes the decisions. Now we're realistic to know that you may have to go with a significant influencer in that part of the process. If we if we do generate a lead with a significant influencer, we are always going to ask if they can please bring the decision maker to the meeting. So we, we want to get that decision maker in the meeting, no matter what, whether we're directly talking with them or if we're talking with an influencer. If we've dropped down a level to the influencer, it means we've at least exhausted our outreach 
to the person that that makes those decisions. So we don't make one call and then say, well, they're probably hard to get a hold of. Let me let me talk to you know, the office manager. Let me talk to this person. Right? It's got to be a number of calls. If the if the business owner recognizes who we are and they've still then kind of pushed us down to somebody else, and we know we've done our job. They they we've we've contacted them enough that they understand you know who we are, but they want us to talk to somebody different. We're still going to try to get them uh, into the meeting, but if we have to go. Uh, with that next person, we will. So we always go top down. We, we do not find traction uh, generating leads with the people that we hope will influence somebody to influence somebody else. Or we hope we're going to show enough value. You know, there's a thought out there that if you, you know, if you get in with an office manager and you show them all the value that makes their life easier, they're going to talk the owner into purchasing it. And the office manager is an office manager, they're not a salesperson. So if you're going to put your sales life in the hands of an office manager or somebody else, like that to try to sell the owner for you on why they they need to go with your product. I don't know if that's the most successful venture. So we'll we'll do what we have to do if we have to drop down to an influencer. But no, we are absolutely in all facets a top down methodology. That that sounds like some hard won business um, realizations. And one of the things that you just un, unearthed that I think is um, deceptively insightful is this idea of more than one person at a meeting or more than one person in a sales cycle, not being single threaded on a single on a sales cycle. Do you actually even comp your SDRs on, on kind of like the more people you can bring to an appointment, a meeting, a, you know, someone you push out to the field, um, the better? Uh, nothing that's directly uh, compensated from that standpoint. We have blended um, and how we compensate based on qualified leads, but also there's a piece that holds the SDRs accountable to sales uh, that come in. So we find it we find it good to, to have a blend of the two. However, what we train is in order for you to really leverage the sales aspect of your comp plan, you're going to need these individuals that uh, are there to sit in on the meeting. So really it, for us, it's training and that it's coaching and accountability by their leader to listen to their calls and point out when they didn't actually ask you know, the other person to come into the meeting. So not, not anything from a compensation standpoint, but really hammering it home in training, initial onboarding, coaching sessions. And we, we certainly, again, layer in a part of their comp plan to drive revenue. And they understand that in order to, to make use of that piece, they've really got to follow those best practices and, and get the right people into that meeting. Knowing that you at least partially comp based on an uh, eventual sales success, I would assume that that means that your your SDRs are probably working pretty closely with the account executives or the salespeople that they serve and at least communicating very well. How does that work when the sales development group is a separate group from the sales team? Uh, yeah, because we are definitely a separate group from the sales team. We have, we have different reporting structure and, and we don't share in revenue. We don't take a percentage of their revenue. It is a completely separate way of, of doing business. However, the SDR, we've integrated into their approach. When I say integrated, I mean, when we generate an opportunity and we have our SDRs work with about three or four reps in our outside sales field, that SDR needs to be really threaded through that sales process. So our SDR doesn't set it and forget it. Um, Our SDR will set up an opportunity. They will try to join that first meeting. They'll tee it up. Why are we here today? I talked to you about this. Our representative is going to talk about this and really build a little bit of rapport and sort of set the table and then hand it off to the salesperson with some momentum. From there, 
they're going to do what we call is a sync call. They're going to sync up once a week with their sales partner to look at pipeline. How's this one going? Where are we at this one? Do these individuals end up closing? So there's an accountability piece in that. If the representative needs the SDR's help to get back in the door at some point, certainly we'll do that. We're not going to make a habit of, of doing all of the rescheduling because we're not admins. But if we have a good one um, that's in the pipeline and, and they're just having a little bit of trouble with it going dark, we're going to try to get them back in the door using uh, the fact that we you know, have more bandwidth to make those calls. So for us, the SDR, the way we view it is the SDR is part of that selling team. They're part of the account team and they stay connected to um, that. We even have the ability for our SDRs to update their partner's revenue in our CRM. So they can talk to their partner, ask how it's going and say, you know what, while I'm in the account, why did I go ahead and put in the revenue? That way we're both looking at updated information on our dashboards. Representative says, yeah, go ahead, that'd be great. They update the revenue and then they're really connected on it. So that rapport that they build and staying close to that process, that's how we've built this business. You know, it seems like you've got a, a number of things that are really buttoned up tightly here. Because earlier you were saying, hey, the transition was really about sending forward very qualified opportunities. And if I'm going to embed the SDR kind of like in the sales machine, so to speak, <laughs> or sales pod or I don't know what the appropriate word to use there is, then then I'm almost going to get qualification as a residue coming off of that that kind of embedded approach, aren't I? You are. And, and so, and that's, again, what we found with that embedded approach and from doing all that and keeping them that connected, it prevents what can happen a lot of times in that dynamic, which is animosity, right? You've sales development people saying, my rep doesn't close anything. Rep saying, you're sending me bad opportunities, right? That's a lack of accountability that takes place. And so you get less of the fall off. A rep isn't going to just maybe give it a, a 50% old college try on an opportunity, right? They know they're going to need to give it a good try. And their, their SDR is there and connecting with them on that and listening to, to the call. So we really want them to hold each other accountable and have that embedded approach versus we just send the leads and you're supposed to close them. And then you, you get a lot of finger pointing um, in that. And in, in this, we don't want them to point fingers in that regard. That that really doesn't lead to anything that's productive. And and so we've we've lived that before. And certainly we've seen that in pockets, but um, it is one of the first things that we will focus on if, if we see something like that starting to pop up. On the people side of the the, the house, does that also suggest that you know, the natural career path within paychecks is kind of moving from an SDR into that sales role next so that, you know, it could even be a transfer of, of sides, so to speak, on that embedded team where you would understand, you know, kind of like both roles <laughs> almost going into the other, sure. the, the, you know, once you level up. Yeah. So I would say it's, it is a common uh, career path. Uh, but we we have really three main areas that people that are sales development reps go from a career pathing standpoint. First, certainly going to full cycle sales, supporting the product that they did from an SDR standpoint. That's one. The next one is leadership. We have SDRs that want to be leaders and in, in, um, get into the management staff as part of the SDR program. And we're always going to try to promote our individuals from within uh, whenever possible. From there, um, we've got a little bit of a blended approach of individuals going to marketing strategy or training. It's not uncommon also for a salesperson to come the other direction and become an SDR. So we really? actually have some SDRs that are former salespeople that realize I like putting leads in the top of the funnel and I like the hunt. 
I don't really have an interest in pushing that over the finish line. So a handful of our SDRs are former salespeople that came our direction versus us promoting the other way. And certainly they tend to be really strong producers for us. I've got to ask the follow-up that I think everyone who hears that is going to be wondering, which is in most organizations, to be blunt, SDRs don't make what account executives usually make. So how does that work with, I mean, you're, you're saying this isn't one or two people. A lot of people do that. Are they just happy to make less as SDRs or is it similar types of comp plans that make that possible? It's not so much for them. The comp plan that we have for outside fields field representatives certainly are what we call a winner's cop. Like they, they can do extremely well um, in full cycle sales. So if somebody's one of the individuals that is blowing their numbers out and doing that, you're right. Th- th- that's not a person that's going um, to probably come over to, to SDR. That, that's just not realistic for them from a compensation standpoint. What we see more of is individuals that are less in tenure as the salesperson. They may not have built, built up their pipeline yet, in all of their referral networks to where the business is coming in so fast, why would they walk away? They're they're more at that point where they've learned their craft, they're skilled up, haven't yet gotten um, really to the point where their sales are are that consistent from from an outside sales perspective. And at that point in time, they decide I've got one way or another to go. I either could keep pushing this and play the long game of building up my outside sales or I can pivot to something in the sales development world, then that's where we tend to get uh, an individual that comes our direction. It's that, or they simply don't like the full cycle sales. They aren't comfortable with asking for the business, but they are comfortable with starting the front end of the process. And um, they just find it to be a little bit more of their personality than uh, the full cycle sales piece of it. Well, and in a 3000 salesperson universe, you're probably going to see all, all, all types, right? All sure. different <laughs> personalities. Yeah. Everything yeah. under the sun. So I, I just feel like you, like every, every aspect of, of your program seems, again, so well buttoned up and thought through. What advice would you give to other folks who are kind of in similar roles that, that you felt like, hey, this was a hard one, or I stubbed my toes here, and if I could provide information to other sales development leaders, what would that be? Yeah, I, I, there's definitely a few things that come to mind because we we have worked really hard to get to the spot where we're at. We're, we're not perfect. So we do still have spots where we've got gaps and different things. And I'd love to say that we're perfect, but we, we still have you know growing pains of, of different ways like everybody else does. But some lessons learned um, are that. So, so the first piece is really, really having a tight partnership with your marketing partners. Um, And that doesn't just mean a business partnership where we're copacetic. That means you're actually taking time to get into their their world a little bit. You know, how many salespeople or sales development people have gone and shadowed their marketing department and spent a day shadowing them to learn, let me see what you actually do when you're pulling the levers so I can get an appreciation for what you put in from a marketing standpoint. Also, how many of them have invited their marketing partners to come shadow sales development for a day and do that. So really it's not just that this we're partners and, and you know you do this and I do that. It should be a very strong sense of we we need each other to operate really well and there should be a mutual respect. If there's a respect gap, there's probably going to be a production gap. So that that's the first thing. Got to learn to love your your marketing partners. That that's a big um, I can't a big as a CMO I can get behind that. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's true. That's true. I was um, chuckling, just laughing at it. 
Eric was failing entirely at hiding the big smile that came to his face when you said that as our CMO. Just shadow our people, learn what we're actually doing. Uh, you could see him light up like a Christmas tree. So you uh, you hit the yeah. nail on the head with that one. It's simple but <laughs> effective. It. There are simple but effective things that people are doing. By the way, that doesn't cost a dollar to no. do that. Um, and so that that's a big that's a big piece there. The other thing I would say is strategy planning. So we talked about this a little bit earlier. Not not every company, depending on their size, has a strategy division or a team of people necessarily, but they should to some extent have somebody who's thinking outside in. So who's thinking about not just what's going on within the business, but what's happening within the market and how do I feed that information and then make informed decisions. But the strategy person, again, they've got to be a holistic thinker, big picture thinker, which means when they're coming up with strategies, they're combining SDR efforts with sales efforts, with marketing efforts. Um, and those teams should have a recurring type of interaction. There should be a marketing, a sales, and a strategy interaction, whether it's a weekly meeting or a monthly meeting, they should be completely in, ingrained into each other's business. Sales should present their numbers to marketing. Marketing presents their spend to sales. Here's what we're driving. Here's what you should be on the lookout for. Sales talks about, here's what we're seeing. Here's what our numbers look like. They should be well-versed in each other's business. Even if they're not part of the same reporting structure, they should know each other's numbers. And, and that's sales, marketing, and strategy combined, those groups. So really being planful with the strategy um, is a big part of it. I, I guess I would say the last thing that would come to mind that's really important is what are you doing to set up your SDRs or whatever acronym you knew, you use for a career path? Because people don't usually take a job because they plan to stay in that role for a long period of time. They want to know what the growth actually looks like. And it's, it's got to be a little bit more than lip service, which means in the interview process, you say, sure, there's all this opportunity to do X, Y, and Z. It means that once they start, if you want to retain that person, you need to be showing them where other people are going. You need to let them shadow other roles. When somebody gets promoted, I hope all of the business units are celebrating it. They send out some sort of a newsletter. They send out some sort of an email. When we were in the building physically here, not one person got promoted that didn't get what we call a clap out, which means their team follows them from their workstation out the front door, all clapping to celebrate the fact that, that person got promoted That's awesome. uh, and is moving on to another group. So you should make a big deal out of promotional opportunities, make them extremely visible. That's what a new employee sees or somewhat new employee. And that's what gives them that feeling that, yeah, I can grow here too. Um, and I can be successful because I can actually see it around me. And if you want, again, retain your strong people, you've got to have really good set of values, you know, really good ability to, to connect with them, but you've got to show them in more than just talking that there's a lot of other options for them at the company. Th those would be some of the things that would jump out to me if I were starting another new business unit or if I were early in the days of building something up from an SDR standpoint that I would certainly focus on. You know, you you led a really nice segue with the end of that into a topic that comes up in a lot of these podcasts, especially over the last few years, which is all the changes in the market recently, COVID and whatnot. And I mean, I'm sure your industry, like every others, took a hit, but Paychex is crushing it. Obviously, it just ran right through that and sprinted through the finish line. Then you talk about building kind of community. You talk about uh, celebrate, you know, clapouts and things like that. So, how yeah. have you adjusted to not having everyone in the office and not not being able to do those types of things? Are you still are you doing those over Zoom, or have you changed the culture with other other things that you do? Because, like I said, obviously your team hasn't slowed down, so you've managed to solve it somehow. 
Yeah, so so uh, we're fortunate because Paychex as an organization has had a tremendous, actually a tremendous couple of, of years. So we're, we happen to have the, the right set of products that have actually helped businesses navigate through all of these challenging times. So not that anybody would wish for a pandemic. However, we certainly helped a lot of companies with things like government stimulus and all that. So for us, it may not have been as painful as other companies, but didn't mean it wasn't as much work. We still had to rotate thousands of people from working in an office to home. We, you know, we had the, the foresight a few years ago to really build up our tech stack, which allowed us to do everything remotely already. We were already called virtual sales uh, before virtual was was the, the really cool term during the present day. We were virtual, you know, sales years ago and, and we did everything remotely before it was cool. share to, to all <laughs> of those. <laughs> right. So for us, it, def- it definitely needed to leverage the different parts of um, the tech stack. But what we didn't want to lose was the camaraderie, which is very difficult when you're not face to face. You can go over and high five people and, and all that. So it means more touch points. It means more huddles. It means more staff calls, but also means that we needed to evolve things like our recognition programs. Now we use online recognition platforms where we can push people points and they can go and use those points to get themselves something. So I can't physically hand somebody a gift card, but I can push them points to recognize them. And so we made a decision a few years ago as a company to go all in on culture to the point where leaders have to get culture training. They have to become culture champions. They have to understand how to operate in a strong culture type environment. And then with that, we actually have the ability to recognize people who are living certain values. So what we did was took our already big culture game and the recognition, didn't let the the pandemic become an excuse to stop rewarding our people or recognizing what they were doing. In fact, we we just made it more so. We have more recognition now in more ways to recognize people again, in whether that's something to do with monetary, if it's something to do with gift cards or or you know points or whatever the case may be, a variety of different ways. But we saw this as an opportunity to take what we were already doing and elevate it versus making an excuse why we can't do it as much. Gotta ask, what kind of tools do you use to do that? You mentioned that you started bringing on extra tools to, to reward people and, and use points. I'm sure a lot of the listeners would love to know what you use. Absolutely. So so different parts of our tech stack. Um, so we use Salesforce for our CRM. We complement that from a dialing perspective with application called Conquer. It used to be dial source for our recognition program. It's a vendor called Halo and they do what's called Halo points. And that allows us to push everything out. Internally in the company, we have something that's called Spotlight and that allows us to give recognition to people who live the values. And then we do things like what you do, which is utilize Gong for call recording and in analytics. So that was a big part of our tech stack, obviously comes in handy in a remote environment. So those would be some of our big ones. We use the email scheduler uh, as well. And, and for that, we use a company called Time Trade. And so we have a, a number of different pieces that are probably similar to, to uh, other companies, but those are the ones that are in our tech stack now, along with WebEx. Uh, we use WebEx and WebEx Teams and all that same way people would use Zoom and um, DocuSign and EchoSign type applications. So it, it's a pretty pretty good uh, stack that that puts it all together. You know, one other question that, that wanted to get to while we are here today is you mentioned earlier having a data science team and you mentioned having different, I mean, you're a large organization. You, you have a lot of different pieces that you can bring together. Not everyone listening has that, but a lot of them are still building a team and they want to accomplish these things maybe on a smaller scale. And, and so the question is, are there one or two roles, if someone's got a team of 10 SDRs or 30 SDRs, something like that, 
that you think I could go hire that one person or those two people, would you recommend someone go hire themselves a data scientist? Or would you say that it's most important to get someone really strong in enablement to help people have soft skills? Are there any basically essential roles that you've noticed in, in all your time and experience that, man, I wish I had that person five years earlier? Uh, there are a number of them, depending on what somebody can, can fit into their company. First of all, yes, probably the first person maybe behind a really, really good trainer. Because what good does it do if I'm just trying to do all my training ad hoc, right? I've got to have a good training, a good training person. So a really good, strong, dedicated trainer. The, the data person to me is right up there. And it's not one, it's one A. Because again, what does it matter what I'm doing if I don't have the right records and I can't get in contact with people? A data person. And then the other one would be a technology person. I have somebody that can help me do a few different things. Build the right dashboards to track all of my metrics. I need it to be somebody who can be agile enough to change something, they need to change a profile, they need to change a setting, they need to do development work. Nothing slows down a strategy faster than, well, that's got to take six months of development, right? Or we've got to outsource that or bring in a contractor to come build that out in our Salesforce instance, right? That, that is a very slow progression. Um, if you get somebody that that's in the company that knows how to do it and is proficient in those things, they can, they can do things within your CRM and change as needed in hopefully short time. Combine that with somebody that can really refine and give you the right data to call. And then combine that with somebody who knows how to train all of it from A to Z. There's other components, but for me, I don't, I'm not sure how I would run an effective, truly effective sales development without those pieces. Well, that's wisdom right there. <laughs> I mean, this is this is a chock full of kind of like setting up to-dos and how I can optimize my organization for any of the listeners of, of our podcast, kind of exactly as you've laid out here, Vince. So thank you for that. It's been yeah, awesome. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I've been through the build before, so I'm certainly happy to share information because when you go through the build process and you wish you knew all those different pieces, it's always beneficial to have somebody you know that, that can share a little bit of that information. So I'm certainly happy to do so. Eric mentioned you guys seem to have a really buttoned up organization and that usually comes from years of blood, sweat and tears and, and painful lessons learned. So it shows, it shows in how you guys have, have kind of coordinated everything. And I think a lot of people will be envious of and uh, envious of what you guys have done and, and use it as an aspirational example. As we get towards the end of this, we always do like to give a time for people to talk about what they do, their organization, that type of thing. So is there anything from your team or, or from what you do in general that you'd like to, to tell our audience about? Uh, I guess what I would say is, you know, I obviously am very well vested in the company that I've been. I've been here for more than 20 years, and that's not on accident. That's because of our you know, executive team and the leadership and, and everything. As you said, we, we've gone through sort of those tougher pieces in building up you know, different programs, but we're at a good spot. Now, it doesn't mean we won't have future builds. We will, and, and those ones will be challenging as well. But we go to future builds optimistically because we've we've done all of those pieces and we've we've been there before. So I would say we've got confidence, even though we know we're going to have you know really challenging times that that come up. The, the other thing I would say, honestly, about the, the company um, in, in, in sales development, and all those different aspects of it, is that it's always rewarding if you can run a successful business as, as Paychex has and do everything that Paychex does, but truly feel good that what you're doing is benefiting the marketplace. I think salespeople sell better when they know that what they're selling is a true need 
you know, for the business owner. And that's why I said earlier with the pandemic, a, a terrible event in time. However, the, the one peace of mind that we can have is that as we saw businesses struggling and going through a lot of these challenges, the ones that we help get funding, the ones that we help get, you know, be able to retire with dignity by having retirement plans, all of those different pieces, that's where you're kind of, you know, moving and firing on all cylinders because it is not fun when you sell for something you don't believe in or when you try to lead somewhere where you don't believe in what the, the big picture is. So I would say um, that's an important part, you know, for the business as well, is really being aligned with the the company. Everybody should be thinking. To me, everybody should be thinking and acting as if they were one of the ones that invested in the company and they're running the company. If you think like you're the one that put the money in, you're running the company, you're probably going to make the right choices. So for us, um, th that's a big part of, of uh, the company. But again, it's just gratifying to be able to work for an organization that has all of that, but we know um, truly it's benefiting the marketplace. That, that's what I enjoy about my role. I, I enjoy everybody that I work with, but I can do so knowing that it actually is helping business and, and growth and all that stuff. So it's just it's just great, you know, from from that standpoint. And I would just challenge anybody who's working for a company to ensure when they think and do and act, are they doing it the same way um, as if they own the company, or do they have some self reflection and realize like, yeah, I was probably a little bit myopic with that choice, or yeah, I kind of made a decision that benefited me, and try not to let that happen because it, it stunts growth, but it also doesn't further the big picture impact on on the company. So that that's what I would say from a uh, from a paycheck standpoint and what I've experienced and the mindset that I try to have both from a sales development perspective, but from a leadership perspective for the company. That's wonderful. Vince, any way that our listeners, if they wanted to, get could get a hold of you? Yes, they, they can. They, probably the easiest thing, I guess, would be right through LinkedIn if they, if they want to, whether they want to shoot me uh, an email, a message through there. I'm always happy to set up time and, and talk about different different aspects of things. So I would say if somebody contacts me and, and you know references that it's in relation to this opportunity, I'm, I'm definitely happy to do so. If it's easier for me to give direct contact information, I can do that as well. But I'm, I'm right there on LinkedIn. They're probably not going to find too many Vince Blasios on LinkedIn. There might be a couple, but it's, it's you know, I'm not Mike Smith. So there it's I'm not hard to find, but certainly I'm, I'm open to if somebody has uh, any questions for me to, to track me down and, and go through uh, any of the details. Love it. Certainly, Thank we you. hope all of our audience knows how to find the only Vince Blasio that works for paychecks and does what we just talked about for an hour. So if, if not- If they don't, they may be in the wrong profession, right? Say, that's, maybe you get much more targeted than that. If you can't find me, <laughs> you're going to have trouble with uh, moving the needle from a sales dev standpoint. That's for sure. <laughs> On that note, really appreciate your time. Thanks for sharing everything you did. All of our audience, I hope you guys took notes. And if not, go back and do it again. It's been such a pleasure, Vince. Thanks so much for joining us. And uh, have a great end to the year. Happy holidays. Yeah, you as well. Happy holidays. Thank you very much for your time.